Welcome to another episode of Tell Me About Your Father's Daddy Issues, where we talk about who or what in recent pop culture and current events is or is not our dad right now. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. Today we are so excited to have on to play Daddy Issues with us, the one and only Maya Kazoff. Hooray. It feels very retro to say that I know someone from Twitter, quote unquote, but I do know you and your hilarious wit the most from what you write on Twitter. You previously were at Vanity Fair. You worked for their section, The Hive, covering the horrors of the tech world. I can't even imagine. (laughs) She's currently the co-host of an amazing podcast called Most Embarrassing Things on the Internet, It's about things that we have to look back on and feel a gong of shame, a reverberation of shame and embarrassment that this content ever even got attention in the first place. Who do you co-host that with, Maya? I host Most Embarrassing Thing on the Internet with my two best friends because it's a great idea to start a podcast with your two best friends. My friends, Kate and Emma. Emma's a culture writer at Vogue. Kate was for a long time an entertainment writer at Refinery29 and now... Uh, runs a really, really good internet culture newsletter called Embedded. Mm-hmm. So that's my plug for Embedded. But yeah, this season we are delving into things that perhaps the internet has forgotten about that are just like, why did this happen? Like one week Emma did something about that Taylor Swift fan who was in prison because she refused to join the IDF um, <laughs> and was like still... <laughs> Still trying to like get messages out about like weighing in on like the latest Taylor Swift controversy like from jail. Um, so you know things like that. You also went viral last year with a tweet about something that your family makes called seafoam salad, <gasps> which then started this whole response to you on Twitter of people sharing their family's sort of questionable. Questionable is the wrong word because I honestly think if I had seafoam salad, I would love it. They're very period. They're very like a period dessert, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of quite retro. People started sharing all of their family's traditional Thanksgiving things. And this went crazy viral. Everyone picked it up, including the Daily Mail and Fox News. And you wrote a hilarious medium post about this experience of going viral. And then all of the seafoam salad, like takes that people then made in your family's honor including what i thought was a squirreling <laughs> but it's actually a cat it's a cat jello mold that someone formed into seafoam salad i believe that the creator of that called it cat in snow because they surrounded it with like mounds of whipped cream yeah from a can yeah. maya can you just take a step by step through exactly what seafoam salad literally is and how it tastes and just give us that experience. Sure. Mm. So I guess I should say that for a long time, I just thought seafoam salad was something that every family in America had on their dinner (laughs) table. And it wasn't until I was like, I don't know, at some point in like elementary or middle school, we were like drawing like what our Thanksgiving meals look like. And everybody was like, what is that pile of bright, bright green stuff? <laughs> <laughs> um, so seafoam salad is like a lot of Midwestern salads in the sense that there's no produce really in it. Um, mm. It's mostly composed of cream cheese, Cool Whip, Jello, uh, canned fruit. It started on my dad's side of the family. Part of his family came from the Midwest to uh, upstate New York, where my family is from in Syracuse. And Mm. this dish graced dinner tables for years. My dad said that when he was a kid, his parents would serve it 
every weekend. It's my grandpa's like favorite meal, which is disgusting. (laughs) 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 And now it's like a thing that we make at Thanksgiving because if we don't make it, then we'll never make it. And Mm -hmm. he normally has a big heaping spoonful on his plate and the rest of us take a polite slab (laughs) slice. I think that's like an appropriate unit of measurement for a piece of seafoam salad. And the way this comes together is also horrible. So you- you take a 32 ounce can of uh, pears and you reserve the pears, but you take all the pear juice and you put it in a pot on the stove and you boil it. And then you pour it over uh, a packet of lime jello until it dissolves, add some cold water. Then what you want to do in a different bowl is you're going to take the pears and this is horrible too. Um, <laughs> and you're going to puree them. You're going to mash them up. If you like a, a more unique consistency, you don't really have to mash them so much. It's a more rustic approach. A rustic, yeah. A little bit more of like a bespoke pear experience. Bespoke pear, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Then you take the lime mix from earlier, you pour it into the pears, and you add a block of softened cream cheese. According to my late grandmother's notes, you should leave the cream cheese sitting out on your counter all day so it softens. Mm. Um, I do feel like the FDA might disagree with that. Um, <laughs> you, you mix that all together. It turns into this pastel green color, and you pour it into a mold of your choice, and you let it sit overnight, and then the next day you invert it onto a plate, and that's your seafoam salad. You serve it with Cool Whip. And uh, have you all seen The Princess Diaries, the movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the dinner party scene where she is supposed to be very sophisticated at this fancy dinner with all of these people from Genovia, and they put this green sherbet on the table in front of each of them. When I saw that, I was like, oh, finally, some seafoam salad representation in the media. (laughs) And that is the closest thing I can think of to a comparison point for a seafoam salad. We don't really like traffic in other salads. We're pretty loyal to this one. (laughs) (laughs) That's so admirable that you're so loyal to your salad. The jello salad is a long tradition in America. When I was mm-hmm. in high school in our home economics class, we had what was called a jello lab where the entire week's coursework was dedicated to making things out of jello. And most of them were salads that involved cream cheese, um, fruit suspended in a gelatin, often mm-hmm. green. There's a dark streak of savory jellos in my mom's yes. side of the family, like in, like Gastric a bell stuff, pepper yeah. mixed in. Her own grandmother used to make her family eat an orange jello with bell peppers and like carrots with sour cream while the smallest children at the table wept and gagged kind of situation. I read last year when I was writing that piece about seafoam salad, I had weirdly read Allie Robottom's memoir, Jello Girls, right before that. She's like the heiress to the Jello fortune. And I never knew that there was such a backstory to Jello, but it is kind of about how her family's dwindling fortunes were kind of made at the expense of the sanity of the women in her family basically there's also lots of like jello diet culture stuff in the book too like Mm -hmm. from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s so um i found it very like anthropologically interesting my boyfriend's family does this i love the jello salad they make but it's bright red because it's pretzel crust Mm. cream cheese and cool whip and Mm -hmm. then raspberry jelly with frozen raspberries in it and that goes on the plate next to the prime beef rib roast on the same stuff. plate yeah it's like next to the potatoes is it a salad because it's salad it? 
Could you oh. mix it? I don't know. If you toss a salad made of gelatin, it's another, it's a <laughs> it's whole a other experience. <laughs> Maya, in the Honor Princess Diaries, I would like to impersonate Julie Andrews telling you that you are princess of seafoam salad. Maya, you are princess of seafoam salad. Thank you. Oh, what an honor. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. We've been planning that for a very long time. Busy. Well done. So... I'm going to quickly say the following. If you would like to support this podcast, please head to patreon.com slash tell me about your father, where for as little as $3 a month, you can access bonus dad content and other fun extras. Wait, before we play, can we ask Maya to tell us about some most embarrassing things on the internet? Dad, internet, fodder. My apologies. How could I have forgotten? When we asked Maya to present us with some of her findings, I did say that wife guy culture is a part I think of embarrassing dad culture. Do you agree, Maya? I absolutely agree. I think that there's some natural tie-ins here with dads. I think of being dad from earlier this year, of course. Um, But then I I also think of, I don't know, curvy wife guy who I believe is a dad now. I think of cliff wife guy whose wife fell off a small cliff in 2019. She's fine. Um, it's canonical now, but there's so many of them. And I, I think that the best ones are the earnest ones. I also mm-hmm. feel like stop now, don't email my wife guy accounts. Mm-hmm. The guy mm-hmm. who asked another man to stop emailing his wife. I'm thinking about my mom. She's not going to know what wife guy culture is. And I'm going to get a text about this. Mm-hmm. For me as a bystander, I've come to understand it as like men who are amazed that they have a wife or it's kind of in the ilk of like, I have had sex before. Like I have a wife and I will incorporate my wife into my identity on the internet. So curvy wife guy, for instance, really set the internet on fire a few years ago when, what did he post? This like diatribe on, on, I think Instagram just being like, I love my curvy wife. Yeah. I think, I think wife guys are men who, they chronically cannot stop posting. Like they have mm-hmm. to post and therefore they have to share about their their wives. They are incapable of just not talking about their wives. And so their wives turn into content. Is it because their wives are their proudest thing that they own? I yeah, so. I don't think that a lot of these men would have a lot without their wives. Like right. I feel like their wives are the backbone of their identity in some ways. Probably right. their wives are probably cooler than they are too. So that makes sense. Well, yeah. So yeah, I, I think that those all count as embarrassing internet dads. I would also say if I may plug my own father's Twitter account. Please do, yes. Ed Kossoff, he's a great follow. He Ed. normally can be found retweeting Onion articles that he thinks are really funny. Um, but he, if you look at his replies, that's like really where his account comes to life. He spends a lot of time replying to Carol King tweets, replying <laughs> to James Taylor tweets, um, asking his favorite saxophonist to come to central Pennsylvania where he lives, or like a musician that he follows will like tweet something and he'll respond with some diatribe about how my dad like saw them in 1977 in Syracuse, New York. And like, isn't that nice? So it's very wholesome and it's a very good response reflection of him I think it's it's funny that he's like a James Taylor reply guy yes (laughs) you know it's it's an aspect of him that I think you would know if you met him but it's even more clear from his Twitter account um my dad also briefly had an acting phase of his life where they were filming Girl Interrupted in 1999 in central Pennsylvania (gasps) so he like took a bit part as like an orderly (laughs) like really down the hallway that's so cool when she was up for an Oscar the next year it was like the scene they played 
So he was technically at the Oscars. Well, don't tell him that. That'll like make his ego really big. But um, yeah, he works construction, but he's always had a thing for acting. It's not really reflected on his Twitter account, but for years I've been telling people this story and it's just something you would never guess about him. And he has like a whole highlight reel that he, he's done like some commercials and oh some like gosh. other small parts. And I feel like I'm diminishing it by calling it like a hobby, but like it's great. He has a YouTube channel too. I just really recommend his videos. Does he get into any dialogue with actual James Taylor? I mean, yeah, no, he's not like getting any traction. Not no one's like responding to him. The people that respond to him are like the small, the smaller time saxophonist that he likes. I don't know any of them by name, but they will respond to him and be like, "Yeah, maybe we'll come to Mount Gretna, Pennsylvania at some point." Wow. Population. 2000. How old were you when he was in Girl Interrupted? And were you like, that's so cool? Or were you embarrassed? Oh, I was so embarrassed. I yeah. I was like seven years old. And it was like around the time my parents were getting divorced. And um, I just thought anything my parents did was really embarrassing. And so I was mortified that he was like in a movie. That was like the most horrifying thing I could possibly conceive of. Like why? What did you think it was that made it so embarrassing? I think I just wanted him to be like normal, like not in a movie. <laughs> No one else's dad's room movies. Sense. Okay. Right. Like, and so therefore it was like weird that mine was, even though now it's like a funny thing that's cool and I can talk about it. So we're going to go into who our dads were not over the past like week or so. Mm -hmm. So just to remind everyone, if someone or something isn't our dad, it means that we think that personal thing has recently been infuriating, tragic, cruel, or just a massive disappointment. Maya, I want to throw to you first. What have you got? Who's not your dad right now? So not my dad is dumb trend stories on the internet. There was a New York <laughs> Times story this week that was like an analysis of the Billie Eilish British Vogue cover. And the story was basically like, not everyone's happy about Billie's decision to wear lingerie. And then like someone tweeted who actually read the story because it wasn't me and was like, well, actually the only person that they cite in the story as being unhappy is one Twitter user who might be a bot that only has three followers. And <laughs> my friend Kate, who I co-host this podcast with, wrote this really incisive take about how this is kind of a trend in media and it's just like a symptom of our diseased digital media ecosystem. Just speaking from her experience in women's media and certainly this is true across the board, but like yes. these dumb stories where it's all predicated on like something one person said online and the headline is like the internet is freaking out about this thing and it's <laughs> it contributes to people feeling uh, betrayed or like they can't trust a news organization. Um, it's kind of a symptomatic Thing of overworked writers at these places who just have mm -hmm. to churn out content and this is like the easiest way to do it a lot of times and also just sets those same writers up for like failure when people get mad at them online ultimately yeah, yeah good point totally it reminded me of 2016 like banner ads when there was more emphasis on just general traffic to the site and so most even magazine websites would post just all day long like 35 posts and they're all terrified that they're gonna lose the opportunity to have Billie Eilish on their own covers or offend Billie Eilish so they're like not us but somebody one person on the internet that's a bot said that they don't like this cover but it wasn't us <laughs> yeah Kate wrote this in her newsletter about this but it's a really good way to divert um away from it 
being the publication saying things to outsourcing these claims to a random person. So, you know, Refinery29 isn't saying that this regrettable tattoo that Ariana Grande got is appropriation and bad, but this one person on Twitter is. And yeah. Don't shoot the messenger. Anonymous sources. Yeah, we're just reporting that it's one 16-year-old said that they're annoyed with Ariana Grande. <laughs> Exactly. It's kind of veering towards the both sides thing where you get some unhinged mm. nutcase and then you get some rational professor and you're like, here are both sides. It's like, no, that's not both <laughs> sides of the fucking story. I think like marketing is kind of the devil. I just still find it so jarring that what you write editorial is just called content. It's defined by the framework around it. It doesn't even matter. You just have to sit there and churn out the thing that goes in the spaces between the ads. It's mm-hmm. just this really weird, empty nonsense thing it's like being like i'm a stuff strategist there was some strategist i was eavesdropping on talking about how her goal was to just really get people to generate content Mm. just generate content like it's like eating newspaper or like endless high fiber cereal that has no flavor just like keep on eating it for no reason the most soulless description of anything is content like that means nothing well another word for generating is exercising and that is not my dad this week really Uh any week but i'm picking peloton because it's in the news on wednesday peloton issued a recall of their forty five hundred dollar tread plus treadmill a six-year-old child died was sucked under the treadmill (gasps) and dozens and dozens more were injured And so the Consumer Product Safety Commission warned the public to stop using them. And at first, Peloton pushed back. This isn't our problem. This is your problem. Keep your kids out of the room where the treadmill is. But the problem is the treadmills weigh hundreds of pounds. So you actually need a human from the company to come and help you move it. So after a lot of public outcry, but really more of like a stock crash, like they Mm -hmm. were in in trouble financially, then they agreed to recall these treadmills. I can't really complain that much about Peloton, although I think it's funny to look back at the tender time of 2019. Remember, we were all upset about that Christmas commercial. Wife guy buys his hot wife a Mm -hmm. Peloton and she seems sad at first, but then really excited. And there was this big outcry about like how misogynistic this was. And the actor who played the wife guy had to make an apology or he felt he had to qualify his talents. You know, I'm not the writer. I just play white husbands on television. Um, (laughs) But then I realized it's really exercise that I hate. You know, not just moving the body. I don't mind that part, but it's the competitive aspect. The idea that you would be alone in your apartment Mm -hmm. or your house, but someone was still yelling at you through a mirror or through a screen. But Erin, do you remember when you and I were in a hotel room, I think somewhere, and you were like, I want you to show me how to do sit-ups. And we were trying to do sit-ups. This is like eight years ago. You were like, I'm never going to do anything unless Matt trains me. And I'm like, it's a terrible decision you're making there. I think we lasted three minutes and we were like, no. And then you ended up working for. I did end up working for. 
like a gym, a line of yeah. gyms doing da da da. Copywriting. I have to say, and I really can't believe I'm doing this. I really don't mind Peloton. They got me through the pandemic because they have these like coaches <laughs> that help you run, and I couldn't do anything else. Run or cycle? Well, both, but I couldn't get on a bike because. I didn't have a bike, so I would go to McCarran Park in Greenpoint and I listened as they tell you what to do. And what's weird about them, the New York Times wrote a story about Cody Rigsby, one of their really popular trainers. <laughs> what's fascinating about Cody Rigsby is that you think he's like maybe kind of dumb and, and like just like, oh, he's a dumb trainer. But there's this kind of genuine realness that comes through and you're like, I really don't hate you. You're really helping me get through this fucking spin class. And then at one point I'd done this class and he said in the class, this kind of thing makes me sad. And don't forget, I really like sad things sometimes. It's okay to be sad. And I'm like, whoa, Cody Rigsby is blowing my mind right oh, he's now. He's a three-dimensional person. That's crazy. <laughs> You know how there's that back to marketing, that kind of desperate push for everything to always be upbeat and high energy, but he's like, no, I like sad things sometimes. I think the real villain with this is the CEO who was like, fuck you, we're not going to bring these back. I don't care if kids were hurt by this. And then I remembered literally like after I'd researched Peloton and its history for an hour that my dad died on a treadmill. There and that might that's, be why I'm so, but I don't that's... make that link. He had a heart attack while exercising on a treadmill, but it wasn't mm -hmm. the, the treadmill's fault. Mm -hmm. I know that's like a real bummer, but I, I do want to yeah. say I, I did find some nice exercise and that is yoga with Adrian, A-D-R-I-E-N-E. -E. Everybody loves her and everybody knew about her. She's this sweet lady from texas who just has a video called yoga for people who feel dead inside or yoga for writers and mm -hmm. i thought it was bold to have yoga for people who feel dead inside come out mm -hmm. in 2020 and she meant it for that it's like what you were saying matt like tying it to an emotional journey as well which is a big part of why people work out Mm. It's a big part of why people like yoga, I think, and just any cool down where you have to focus on breathing and where people sometimes teachers will take it to the next level and be like, go back to seven year old you and give mm -hmm. her him a hug, mm -hmm. you know, and you're like, uh, uh, this is silly. And then you're crying five seconds later. I did a soul cycle class this morning and it was a bit like that. I'm like, girl, just do the class. Stop with the psychiatry. Matt comes from big exercise, so Matt is disqualified in his take on this. Erin is also biased because of her connections to her dad. And so, Maya, what do you think? Oh, what do you think about- This is where about? I have to come out as, as telling you guys that I'm my own Peloton wife guy. Like, I bought <gasps> my own Peloton. I saw you nodding enthusiastically. Yeah. yeah, I bought it last year. I had moved into this apartment that had this perfect nook where a Peloton bike could perfectly fit. And I was like, I guess I have to buy a bike. And I also was never like a big soul cycle person, but I was a big flywheel person. Oh my God, Shout yes. That's the RIP best of the now closed of Williamsburg flywheel. Yeah. Yep. So last year I, I was just like, I'll just make this investment and buy this bike. And unfortunately it's really good. Like I, re I really hate exercising more than almost anything. And I love a Cody Rigsby class. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, I'm, I, I love a dumb spin class. It's incredible. 
I hate a CEO who won't recall a fucking faulty treadmill. And I also hate that they triggered you, Erin, but I actually do Mm -hmm. like, I really like Peloton. (laughs) Maya and Matt, who are your other favorite Peloton hosts? Are there other people? Allie Love. Allie Love is really awesome. I like Alex. Alex Tucson. Yeah, and the, yeah. the Club Banger series. Yeah. It's very fun. His name is Alex Tucson? <laughs> no, Tucson. It's the it's French. Tucson. Tucson. Yeah. Okay. Busy. Let's talk about who your dad was not. Okay, well, I'm really tired of hearing about this person this week. Bill Gates, you're not my dad. Let me tell you why. Bill Gates, in theory, like in comparison to the Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos of the world, et cetera, et cetera, is viewed as because of his charitable foundation with his wife, Melinda, that he is kind of different, that he really does give back. He's written a new book about climate change. He has a lot of ideas about what to do about it. He wrote and spoke at length about the fact that something like COVID would happen, and he was correct. However... Something that I saw get tweeted this week by someone has wedged its way into my brain, has stabbed its way into my brain like a Bill Gates-shaped icicle, that Bill Gates negotiated in his marriage to Melinda in the early 90s, I don't know what you would call it, a clause, to be able to spend one weekend a year with his ex-girlfriend at a beach house in the Outer Banks. Now, when I heard this, I thought, good for Melinda. That's a boss move. And I almost made Melinda my dad this week because I was like, good for her. She's not threatened. She said, fine, go off and do this. Maybe she's allowed to see an ex. But Then the more I read about it, the more annoyed I got with him. I started thinking about the fact that we don't talk enough about who was on Jeffrey Epstein's plane logs, whose names were there. Bill Mm -hmm. G. Not once, not twice, but thrice. Thrice times did Bill G fly on the Lolita Express along with Bill C and other Bills. So Bill Gates, we didn't forget about this. Apparently, this just came out today, the Daily Mail, excuse me, just picked this up today, that Melinda uh, expressed her displeasure over his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein and what a creep he was and how uncomfortable it made her. And so to me, I just feel like we actually do need to look at the fact that that he's never, ever taken responsibility for the fact it's just, oh, yeah, I... I didn't know I was flying on his plane the same way that that Malcolm Gladwell did. It's like you just go on people's airplanes. And also like Malcolm Gladwell, maybe. But Bill Gates, you have one hundred and fifty billion dollars. You don't need to fly on anyone's airplane. Yeah, he says he doesn't remember flying on the plane or he didn't know that that. He didn't know. That's what he said. He didn't know. Wishes he never met Epstein. Look, we we all wish we'd never met Epstein at this point. Which is a little little heavy handed for someone that was only talking to him about possible philanthropic work together. Three years after he was out of prison for a child something bad. That's Mm -hmm. right. Three years after he had served a year in prison 
and Bill Gates had the audacity to take Melinda to dinner at Jeffrey Epstein's house. And she was the one who was like, this guy is fucked up and I don't want you hanging out with him anymore. And he does have uh, daughters. Mm -hmm. does Another have daughters. father with daughters. Can you believe it? But then I got extra annoyed today because I noticed a Washington Post article filed under the vertical relationships. I didn't know the Washington Post had a relationships vertical. But the headline is, if Bill and Melinda Gates can't make a marriage work, what hope is there for the rest of us? Like, Jesus as if there's some like amazing poster couple. The first paragraph makes me want to scream. Just imagine how many hours of couples therapy you can afford when you're among the world's richest people or the shared sense of purpose you could forge while raising three children and running a $50 billion charitable foundation with your spouse. Then imagine that it's not enough to keep you together. They're a business partnership. It's fascinating, though, that he did have this Camilla Parker Bowles since they were even dating. And this woman, like Camilla, was or is also married to another person now this woman is 70 years old and apparently they're Wait, but, still in love that's, but that's the thing that is okay that's the pass he was given and it's not a big deal who gives a fuck if he's sleeping with his ex if, if his wife doesn't care my god that's fine she's the one saying this is fine like but it's the pass that he took by refusing to acknowledge any kind of affiliation with with Epstein and then I start getting mad at Bill Gates where I'm like who the fuck do you think you are and I think that some of his hubris honestly comes from his ability to jump over a fucking chair have you guys seen this video that's mm -hmm. like in 1994 Connie Chung interviewed him <laughs> And he jumped over a chair, like just like a desk chair from a standing position. Sounds like a Steve okay. Jobs move. Mm -hmm. And people are still talking about it. When you Google it, this headline comes up that I never want to see again. <laughs> Bill Gates once jumped over a chair. Elon Musk, quote, pretty impressed by video. <laughs> oh, my God. If this is from February of last year. Then you have Connie Chung. I found a clip of her on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, in which he's like asking her about various interviews. And she says one that really sticks out was Bill Gates walking out of this interview this 1994 because this is right when Microsoft is getting, you know, slapped with an antitrust lawsuit from the FTC. And she asks him about the fact that like, he really has tried to sideline his competitor and Microsoft really has been predatory and he walks out of the interview. And then Connie Chung says, but you know what was really cool? At the end, he jumped over a chair. You know who walked out on me that was great was Ooh. Bill Gates. Really? Uh -huh. Why? And well, I was pressing him about all the companies that he was trying to gobble up yeah. just through lawsuits yeah. and what have you. But he also jumped over a chair from a standing position. To get away from you. <laughs> yes. yes. But it was great. Wow, yeah. yeah. Like, what is this? <laughs> Why is this getting this guy a pass well. for so long? So Bill Gates, you know, the, the chair jumping is not going to help us forget about Epstein's plane. And that is why you're not my dad and you need to stop jumping over chairs. Maybe there's something really important in American culture about chair jumping. Remember when Tom Cruise was jumping on the on the couch on the chair in Oprah and that just like Pat Kingsley wasn't there with a rifle to stop oh, anyone from yeah, saying anything yeah. about him. So then it just all the crazy came out like Pandora's box. It just like all flew out of him. 
that was t- like the power of a chair jumping but why moment. Are st- why are, I don't know. I just don't like that that people give him such a pass that they're like, but he can jump over a chair. He's a rich white man. I know. And the fact that they're so dazzled by this is upsetting. Just sit in the goddamn chair. Jumps and in chinos. Leaning into tech and not forgetting the past. Firstly, I want to thank you, Maya, for bringing this story to my attention. You tweeted about this this week, and I thought it was completely amazing. Tumblr, as the online platform, tweeted this week the following tweet. Well, there's no way around it. At Tumblr is one of the queerest places on the internet. How queer? Question mark. Apparently, folks on Tumblr are 193% more likely to identify as LGBTQIA+. Than on any other social media platform, including Twitter. Is that you? Are you hashtag Tumblr queer? Oh my God. So here's why this sucks so fucking badly. Tumblr's boilerplate is messages. Tumblr is a place to express yourself, discover yourself, and bond over the stuff you love. It's where your interests connect you with your people. So that's why this is kind of stunning, because on December 17, 2018, they enacted an enormous censorship act. Tumblr did, wanted to provide better, more positive Tumblr by uh, making sure that content is free of things like photos and videos of genitalia, sexual acts, and female presenting nipples. That was the legal term that I'm sure yeah. 400 lawyers argued over. Um, many of those things are important components around which trans people have congregated and other queer people. They've established communities and that form the basis for accounts like sex workers and porn stars. The reason that they banned that kind of content was because there was a reaction to child pornography and sex trafficking porn that was found there. Pressure came from Apple, which, of course, it's always a business decision, which removed Tumblr from the App Store in reaction to that. Then Trump signed into law the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, which were criticized by people who were um, sex workers and outreach workers, sex workers, like organizations that had survived sexual assault for being super vague. And that the vague language was going to lay the groundwork for like wider censorship. What I think this is, is I think that it's tech gentrification. Jake Jackson of Cocky Boys, who we interviewed last year, described porn stars as like punk rock is what he said. And I think that he's super on point there. These platforms like Tumblr and like OnlyFans does the same thing. They are super fine with hardcore sexual content. A lot of that is sex positive communities. They're fine to build up their brand and build their business. But then when they want to go mainstream, they quickly divorce themselves from that, completely marginalizing those communities and then just acting like they never had anything to do with these communities, which is what they're doing here. They're acting like they never did any kind of censorship ban and that it's just super positive, like we're super queer. And there's something kind of really loathsome about that. And the people I think in this that are definitely not my dad are the queens that work in their creative department and in their marketing department who went, yeah, this is fine. We'll write the copy for this. We'll put this out there because it's like, you know, you know what this is. This is bullshit. It's very ahistorical. Like, I mean, it, and it's not even, it's not like this happened 20 years ago. It no. happened I mean, four or five years ago. Yeah. People remember, I mean, the, all the people who were, there goes a, there goes a motorcycle outside. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the people who were essentially forced off of Tumblr, like are the ones reasonably criticizing this tweet this week from the Tumblr account. 
I know. And it's also like, obviously, we're super against child pornography and sex trafficking, of course, as are the advocacy groups that were criticizing these laws and this action. Just say it again, say it again, say it again, say it yeah. again. And then people will just you hear it five times and then it's true. I think the reason that this is so upsetting to me personally is because I like grew up on Tumblr. I was like Tumblr famous in high school and college. And, yeah, brag. It was like the golden age of Tumblr. It was like 2009 through like 2012, I would say. And it was like such a thriving social community. And then it got sold to Yahoo. And then it got sold Mm -hmm. again to Automatic, the company that owns WordPress. And like with every passing sale, there is just less value like put into the product itself. And these communities are the ones who ultimately suffer from it. It's true. The litany of comments on that tweet, it was just one after the other of saying, you are ridiculous. This is not true. You banned all these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, to just expand who was benefiting from this before the ban came into effect, um, people who were trans that were documenting their surgery. And so you know, you could have people who were photographing top surgery, having some kind of visibility, seeing other trans people, they were misgendered and they were erased. I mean, that as a gesture just emotionally is, I'm sure, traumatizing, but it's just like an inhuman, unnecessary thing to do. The other thing is that the ban was, it was ostensibly for like NSFW content, but that really translated into like entire categories of queer content, for lack of a better word, being erased. Like if you, if you searched on Tumblr for lesbian, nothing would come up. They just wholly banned categories of people and content from the site. So, I mean, it was just like a really poorly applied, not well thought out poorly implemented process i think it's just you need diversity in those rooms when you're having those discussions to stop dumb shit like this from happening Mm -hmm. um (laughs) shall we lighten the mood and talk about who our dads were Mm -hmm. if we decide something or someone is our dad it means that we think that it or they have recently shown big boss energy tempered by compassion intelligence and or vulnerability biz who have you got I want to use my dad this week to educate our audience over someone that we have been a big fan of internally for the past year. My dad this week is the performer Clay Woman, who is the character of an actor named Michael Cavadias, who incidentally, coincidentally, his name sounded familiar to me when I looked him up, and it turned out that he was the Democratic delegate for the 12th Congressional District, which is my district, and who I voted for to uh, be a delegate to represent Bernard Sanders at the DNC. I digress. Michael Cavadias is... A performance artist. He comes from the Bridget Everett Colascola world of comedy, and he has this character named Clay Woman, who is 500 years old. She's from the Marillion Galaxy. She looks like dirt. <laughs> she looks like if dirt came to life. Um, she's been around since 2009. Her Instagram account is filled with little videos. I'll play you a little clip. She talks a lot in her videos about a planet called David. <laughs> There's always something wrong happening on the planet David. This is Clay Woman talking to the Jennifer sisters. They're pop stars in the Marillion Galaxy. And they're complaining to him about... Uh, Let me read you the caption. It says, I had the bright idea to contact the Jennifer sisters and the results were decidedly mixed. For anyone familiar with the Jennifer sisters, you know that they're an incredibly omnipresent entertainment act in the Marillion Galaxy and they're notoriously jealous of anyone else who tries to do any kind of performing arts. They're also unbelievably litigious. 
Uh, recently, there was a hullabaloo regarding them trying to shut down a perfectly lovely folk dancing festival on the planet David. I figured I'd ask them about it and try to mediate. Um, so you can't understand anything the, the Jennifer sisters say. Their language is just ecstatic. <laughs> but here's uh, here's Clay woman talking to the Jennifer sisters about why they won't let the Planet David folk dancing uh, festival happen. Why is she threatened when other people are having fun? Couldn't you just let it happen? Couldn't you just let the dancing happen? You don't even have to know about it. I love no 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 I understand (laughs) I love clay woman I love clay woman's um exasperation she kind of chatty the character of clay woman's always complaining about various friends of hers including someone named Maria and someone named Joan Maria is very egotistical Joan doesn't have boundaries (laughs) and she'll just kind of launch into these you know side stories and reminds me of like Someone that like maybe hasn't had a friend in a long time to like divulge this information to. Um, someone like a lady that is just more than happy to like launch in a story with like about a bunch of people that you've never met. She reminds me of Lady Pamela Hicks, who was one of the Queen's ladies in waiting, whose father was the last Viceroy mm-hmm. of India. And her, her daughter, India Hicks, features her constantly on her Instagram. She has this enormous hair and she'll tell you these stories about like her mongoose and it's incredibly basic information but because she's she's sort of royal adjacent no one's ever asked her any of this question she's like and the queen was obsessed with this one teacup you know and it goes on for 10 minutes and it's like (laughs) does she have children i know that she had a non-sexual friendship with jesus (laughs) at Mm. one point (laughs) But we should we should wish Clay Woman a happy Mother's yeah, Day because she, she's she's possibly older than Mother Earth, so she might be you know the original. Mother, she certainly has powerful maternal energy, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So thank you, Clay Woman, and this is also just my long uh, extended request to please come <laughs> on, tell me about your father. We did tweet to Clay Woman last year and ask her to come on, tell me about your father, and she said that she didn't really talk about her parents (laughs) so we're gonna revisit that we could find out why that's the story what what do we maya tell us who is your dad right now so my dad this week and he's been my dad for the past i would say several months is this youtuber and i want to preface this by saying i'm not like a youtube person i don't have like favorite youtubers (laughs) that feels like something that distinctly belongs to someone like four years younger than me um I feel like I'm like an, a slightly older millennial than that. But I, I found this guy last year because my boyfriend and I, for Christmas, we like made a steak. And I think that this is how the algorithm got me into this guy's YouTube. So we were watching a Maddie Matheson video about like how the garlic butter based a steak. And then the next video I was served was this video from this man named Alvin Zhu who was making like some insane beef wellington that took like 72 hours to make. 
And I sat through the entire video, which again, like I never do. I don't watch YouTube videos for fun. That's that's what streaming services are for. That's like why you pay for, I don't know, over the top cable networks. But <laughs> so I was wrapped because he just combines this like beautiful, delicate, like videography and this like soft music in the background. And it's like a little bit of like ASMR, like he turns up the mic on all of the cooking sounds and he doesn't speak to the camera at all. There's subtitles. And sometimes he'll like talk to the food or like make a noise after he takes a bite at the end. And it's like very humanizing and sweet, but he works at Buzzfeed, he works at Tasty. So he knows what he's doing when it comes to food videography, Mm -hmm. but he seems to be most famous from what I can tell of the Alvin Zoo fandom on YouTube. He seems to make a lot of food videos where the food takes like a really long time to make and there's like a payoff at the end because it is like an amazing brownie or like the Mm. best garlic butter steak ever. And I feel like he made the second half of my 2020 after I found him and the rest of the past several months like very bearable. Sometimes I'll put on like an Alvin video before I'm like getting ready to go to bed like I'll do like my face roller and I'll take out my contacts and I'll brush my teeth and I'll put on my Alvin video and he'll be making cookies and it's just really nice. And Alvin, you're a great dad. I I was looking online when I was researching for this. I wanted like an interview with him. I wanted like a profile. There's like a, I think it's like a BuzzFeed Tasty Wikipedia page for him. They have like a wiki. Mm -hmm. So I learned a little bit about him, but there really isn't a lot. And I I just think he has this like amazing fan base. There's Alvin stands out there, Alvin Army, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I'm suggesting names here. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I would love Alvin to get the amount of attention I think he deserves outside of YouTube. He's not trying to teach you through... No, he's just showing like what he does, but he does, he's not like giving you like step-by-step recipe. And he shows you things you didn't expect. I am so grateful to you, Maya, for pointing this guy out to me. It's so ASMR. He doesn't talk. Mm -hmm. It's not some yammering narcissist thirst trap for like, you know, seven minutes where they do shots of cappuccinos. He has actual tips of cooking you wouldn't think of. The 100-hour lasagna was a kind of revelation to me. Like, Mm -hmm. the brownies is truly something because it takes him 100 hours to make that because he just lets it at various stages sit in the fridge. But he doesn't speak. His place is beautifully laid out. It's so unpretentious. Mm -hmm. I totally know why you chose him. He's always like baking and making food for his friends, which I think is really nice. And I don't know. He just seems like a very nice individual. And in many ways, what he does is the opposite of Tasty. So I think he has a very versatile skill set here in terms of food videography. Totally. Oh, that's really interesting because, yeah, Tasty and uh, it's all about the super cut, you know, everything's sped up. It's shot from above. There's hands putting something together. It's intended to be consume talking about generated Mm -hmm. content consumed in 90 seconds or less and this is what a 10 minute plus Mm -hmm. video about how to make 100 hour quote-unquote brownies and yeah you'd never hear his um it's all narrated via caption closed caption so i had my mouth hanging all thing it was it was what i would call a journey Mm -hmm. it is a journey and I liked it. I liked being on the journey. Have you guys ever heard that expression, journey? Because I just yeah, came wow. up with it. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> that could be applied to any brand story or experience. I wonder if there's like a way to, yeah, patent that around like talking about exercise mm, or fitness too. Your fitness journey, <laughs> your brownies journey, your descent into insanity journey. Yeah. You don't realize you're on the journey until it's forever. 
I want to stick with food because it's important to me. But also, <laughs> can I just say right now, and maybe for the past like three months, for has been my dad, the Vietnamese noodle soup. And I, the thing is, I fucking hate soup, most of it, because it's stupid. I love the word soup. I say the word soup a lot, mm -hmm. and I think it's funny, just like the word ham is funny and pants is funny. But I really don't like soup that much. Because <laughs> in the 90s, it was all just this stinking glorified water that kind of smelled like it was in the 90s i'm thinking about my <laughs> 90s soup memories and they are terrible because with one or two exceptions both of them related to my aunts because my aunt's a food technologist and she invented like asparagus soup for unilever and it was really good and my other aunts made gazpacho those were the only two soups in the 90s i accepted so i was always like bored with soup it's not the fucking perfect meal stupid However, pho is just like not any of those things. It is a deeply generous dish. It is so full of flavor. It doesn't have any anxiety in it. It doesn't have like the flavor profile that's resonated out of the great wars. It's not about emergency. It's just so warming. And when I was a smoker, I'd wake up in the morning and go, fuck yes, I get to get out of bed and have a cigarette, but I don't smoke anymore. And now I have that feeling about pho. And that's really helped me through the pandemic. Plus the kid who gives it to me is this like kind of queer Vietnamese guy with like blonde hair. And he's like this little twink and he's like, hey, here's your pho. And I'm like, thanks. It's very sweet when I buy it. So I just am really glad about pho. It's my dad right now. Well, so wow. my dad, um, a couple week weekends ago, I kind of dove headfirst back into socializing after like my second vaccine, but I went too hard. Mm -hmm. And so um, on a Friday night, I just got obliterated by accident. I don't know how it happened. And the next day I felt horrible all day and I had fun at night and it revived me. I came to life again. It's like putting a house plant in water and letting it bloom again. That's how I felt about fun that night. It's yeah. nourishing. It is nourishing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Filling, soothing. Matt, I had no idea you were. I really want to hear more about the soup of the 90s because I can't. I know. I want to hear about I that think too. I know. It's yeah. about cans. It's Jay about cans. chunky. The variety yep. that's more like a dog food. And that happened in the 90s for Matthew. That's when I was starting to really conform my opinions about soup. And I really just eventually went, I don't like this. Stop giving it to me. It's a latchkey kid thing, too. Did you have that in Sydney? The no, latchkey experience. You least from school, you'd walk yourself home, you know, the 20 minutes. Hope not to be kidnapped. Take the key off your necklace. Let yourself in the house and then make yourself a can of Campbell's yeah. and hope uh. that it worked out okay. Yeah. Would you do that, Erin? Did you make soup as an after school Yeah, snack? but I liked it. A chunky clam chowder in a can. Uh. I only discovered these soups later that I was like okay with because it was just always this like brown vegetable water with shitty meat in it. And I'm like, this smells like nightmare war anxiety and like stop it. <laughs> also, no shade if you like soup. Please like it all you want. I don't give a shit. You've twice said that it's war anxiety mm -hmm. and war panic. Is it because it's the food of of famine it's the food yeah of, like the blitz you know times. like oh we've boiled up some okay. paper and some onions there's our dinner for six months <laughs> what if the charlie and the chocolate factory grandparents really imprinted on your brain 100 percent cabbage water i think i've really driven this topic into the ground so it's aaron 
take us home. I'm take it home. My dad this week, big boss energy galore, is Gene Smart, beloved American yes. actor. When I was growing up, I knew her as Charlene in Designing Women, I'm sure, which is still in syndication. I was watching her the other day in the new prestige drama on HBO, Mayor of East Town, starring Kate Winslet. It's another tits and murder, you know, mystery. I think there's seven episodes, a whodunit, and Gene Smart plays angry Kate Winslet, detective, grizzled, mum, as Matt would say. And I'm going to play a little clip of her in her full glory, and then we'll talk. Picking up on a weird energy in here. Yeah, it's the energy of the trail. Oh, cut it out, Mayor. Jesus Christ. Can I talk to you for a minute? That's your cue to fuck off. Oh, God. Sorry. Good luck. She's in one of her giant asshole moods tonight. You know what? Fuck you. Yeah, fuck you too. All right, so that's a little sure. bit. I'd never heard, you know, Gene Smart say the F word or the A word before. And then Matt texted me and was like, I think I'm going to do Gene Smart as my dad this week. And right when I was thinking the same thing, and that started this text chain of all of our favorite Gene Smart moments. And holy mm -hmm. crap, first of all, you know, besides what we already mentioned, there's Fargo, there's 24, there's Watchmen. But then Busy reminded us that she played Eileen Warnos in a movie <laughs> called Overkill, the serial killer that was then played by Charlize Theron to great acclaim in Academy Award. In the Academy Award, she also played Camilla Parker Bowles in Lifetime's movie about Kate and Wills. Remember when yes. they were the hot romance? You know what's funny mm -hmm. about that? She makes her entrance down a winding staircase wearing a full length African print caftan and like platform heels with Camilla hair. It, they set like a real solid chunk of that like l terrible movie at that like wildly racist African themed party the royal family had that they got into a lot of trouble about. So everyone's dressed up like African people and animals that actually happened. So like why they just really just fixate on that in this film. is That crazy. happened in 10 years ago when Will and Kate got married? Something like that around that time. Hmm. But Jean Smart's having a moment, right? She's like, she's a woman in her like late 60s, early 69. Okay. She has two children. And I just read today that her husband died in March. Yeah, middle of March. Mm -hmm. A long time. She met him on Designing Women. He was another actor named Richard Gilliland or Gilliland. He died after a short illness. That's, that's sad. But she is not stopping and then matt texted me do you know that she's the direct descendant of dorcas whore which is what dorcas one of the last women convicted of witchcraft during the salem witch trials <laughs> indeed that is on her wikipedia page so her big boss energy comes from a long line of alpha women and that's why she's on three major TV shows right now, like on <laughs> running at the same time. D-O-R-C-A-S, whore, H-O-A-R. 
it was on discovered on that PBS show, you know, about unfortunately last named. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't stop guess what else about her? Her, her, that you guys saved the Dorcas. Yeah, we, that we buried the lead tell there. Me you were yeah. gonna... But also, she has a son named Connor who is, <laughs> from what I could tell, breathtakingly gorgeous. Except he has no online presence, according to the son. That there makes is, him perfect. I know, like he's <sighs> like, he just—I don't know—but he's like twenty-seven or something, and he just doesn't. He's not online, but he has like beautiful eyes <laughs> in this one photo. <laughs> Busy, are you okay? Do you need a minute? Yeah, I, Dorcas Horror is our, our moms mm-hmm. and our dads, and the sun and the moon and the she sky. Is, Dorcas, she's Hor. our Circe. Maya, do you have do you have do you have a a favorite Jean Smart role? I'm so glad that you asked because I was patiently waiting to drop this bomb. <laughs> so one of my, I think one of her more uh, like overlooked parts is. In the animated Disney Channel series, Kim Possible, mm-hmm. um, she's the voice of Kim Possible's mom, who I believe is named Dr. Anne Possible. So, yeah, I just want to I want to do some Kim Possible representation. I think that's here. fair. Yeah, oh, she's done. Oh, my God, I love that. I think similar in a similar vein, my one of my favorite roles she's played is... Uh, depression kitty in big mouth on netflix the animation she plays mm-hmm. depression as made real in a cat like that show is a masterpiece but she also just like when aaron and i were talking about this i just was so overwhelmed by her i was like i can't articulate i'm just gonna become like a gay fawning man over a and like a high impact powerful woman i'm just not gonna be able to do this properly so i'm glad you took it Aaron. yeah if you disagree or agree with our picks or have any of your own you can sound off in our instagram comments or send us a dm we are at, at tell me about your father maya thank you so much not just for coming on and but for telling us about so many wonderful things that we didn't know about you're a ble- mm-hmm. you're a blessing you are a blessing you oh, are a blessing you. Okay, you're yes you're all my dads this week too oh, wow. oh stop <laughs> i mean keep going but still stop you know <laughs> now let's talk shit about people um <laughs> should we say happy mother's day yeah okay happy mother's day Anne. Is that what you call your? Go ahead. You you call your mother Anne. You're like, Anne. No, I call her mommy. We've already gone over. You this. call her mommy. And I'm not going to be shamed for being part of the mommy nation. I'm also part however, of the mommy I'll nation. Call... Thank you for being brave. Thank you, Maya. Fair. Um, and you would like to say Happy Mother's Day to mommy Donna. That's right. Well, your actually, mom. so it's funny mm-hmm. that you said it like that because in high school my friends used to call mm-hmm. her Mama Donna. So. Oh, happy Mother's Day to Mama Donna. That sounds like Madonna. Mama Donna. Okay. Mm -hmm. Are you doing on to Paige? Happy Mother's Day, Paige. Well done. I'm just not, no, whatever. I'll say Happy Mother's Day to my mother, but it's, I think, in June for Australia, but whatever. TBD on your Happy Mother's Day, Helen. We'll we'll stick a pin in that and talk about our content strategy for Helen later. I still appreciate that. (laughs) That's our show. Thank you. That was, thank you, Maya. Thanks so much for coming this was so on. so fun. Thank you for having me. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are produced by Aaron Hoser, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Soch. 